chapter 1, reading from verse 3. His, that is God's, divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's words. Well, we are looking for growth in every area of life, aren't we? Whether it's the seeds that we have planted in our gardens or the children that we have brought home from the hospital, we expect growth. And my two-year-old son has a, a height chart in his bedroom. He has grown one centimeter in the last month. I've calculated that by the time he's 25, he's going to be 12 feet tall. Not only do we look for growth, we play our part in achieving it. We pour water on plants, we provide food for our kids, and we have the joy of seeing our work produce results. I would like us to see this morning that the same can be said of the Christian life. We are expected to grow in godliness. Yes, we know the verses of God giving the growth, but the Bible is clear we are expected to play our part in achieving it. But unfortunately, like me, maybe you find it difficult. And we forget that last part all too easily. Well, in the middle of 2 Peter 1, we have this very clear warning. The hazard lights are on. The little reflective triangle is out there to warn us. It is possible for a follower of Jesus to make little or no progress in godliness, and as a result, live an ineffective and unproductive life. It's there in the text. The hazards are on. Doesn't that sound horrible? I mean, nobody likes being unproductive and ineffective, do they? I've never met anyone who gets to the end of the day and said, I've not really achieved very much today. I didn't get through any of the things on my to-do list. I've made no progress at all. This is a good day. 
I've never heard anyone say anything like that. No, it's truer to say that with that same account, people experience a heavy feeling of guilt or disappointment at their lack of productivity. So what do we need as Christians to keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful, unproductive in our walk with God? I wonder if we need an app. There are hundreds of thousands of apps available for smartphones and iPads. And you would not believe how many of them are productivity related. The download count on these apps is absolutely huge. It seems like everyone everywhere wants some help to get things organized and get things done. So they resort to downloading apps like Carrot. It's, it's called to, a to-do list with a personality. But I would rebrand it as a to-do list with an attitude problem. It helps you set goals and achieve them by commenting regularly on your progress. But it does it in a way that's very, very different from every other app, uh, productivity app. So it says warm and encouraging things to you when you make progress, but it berates you if you're rubbish. You see, when you fail to meet certain goals that you've set, this pretty white app turns black and red and berates you for being a lazy human. And people enjoy this. What's more, if you follow the Carrot app on Twitter, if you don't get through your to-do list very productively, it names and shames you to thousands. Is that really what we need Do we need guilted into getting things done? Do we need an app like this? Is this what this sermon is about? Shall I start naming and shaming? No, definitely not. This sermon isn't a guilt trip. This call towards godliness isn't a guilt-driven thing. No, when it comes to making progress in our faith, We're not driven forward by a taskmaster like this. We're called forward by a loving, heavenly Father. And to help us see this, uh, I want to jog your memory through Peter, who jogs our memories. Look at verse 12 with me. We didn't read it, but look at verse 12. He says, I will always, always remind you of these things, even though you know them. And I think it's right to refresh your memory. So today, uh, this sermon provides a few reminders for us of what motivates us in our growth in godliness and encourages us to see how we play our part. The first thing we're supposed to see in verses 3 to 4 is God's amazing provision. God's amazing provision. The power to grow in godliness is supplied by God. Look with me at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So that when it comes to growing in godliness, God is this ultimate energy provider. His power is ours in constant supply. We're not lacking anything. It never runs out. There is never a shortage. There is no need for any kind of dual fuel in the Christian life. Everything we need is supplied by this one source. 
And think about this power and how it's described in verse 3. This is divine power. Divine power. And what happens when divine power is in operation? We see things change. In the beginning there was no light. What changed when God by his power said, let there be light? There was light. As we were looking at earlier, when the people of God were stuck by the Red Sea with a bloodthirsty army in pursuit, what changed when God said, Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide it? By an almighty act of God's power, God's people crossed over on dry land. Now, stop and think about that for a second. That this divine power is ours. On constant supply. Which means then that we have the hope of change. That we have the hope of progress in our faith. We're not stuck as we are. So the power to change what is afflicting your marriage is divine power. And it's on constant supply. The power to subdue the anger that you increasingly feel when your kids are disobedient and horrible to you is divine power and it never runs out. The power to control that tongue that gossips people into disrepute is divine power and it's yours on tap. And the power to overcome timidity and boldly share your faith with others is divine power and it's yours by the bucket load. How come we get to be plugged into such a wonderful power source? Is it by our own glory and goodness? Did we make the mark somehow? Did we, did we figure something out for ourselves? No, look again at verse 3. Who does the glory and the goodness belong to? Jesus. It's because he is glorious. It's because he is good that we are plugged into this power source. Look at verse 3. The divine power is ours through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you see that? God's power comes to us through faith in Christ. It comes to us because he is glorious. We're called by him and plugged into his power because, fundamentally, by his character, he is majestic. He is holy and righteous in all of his perfections. We've been called because it shows him as loving and gracious and it brings him glory to rescue. And it comes to us because he is good. We're called by him and plugged into his power because his heart is full of love and his love is not lazy. It's outward. It's others-centered. It's up. It's moving towards us. It's active to do for others, us in particular, that which makes us happy and joyful and satisfied. That's why we've been called. He is glorious and he is good. Now can I ask you, do you know him today to be God who is glorious and good? 
I'm not asking if you know that information about him or that that's what is claimed by Christianity. That's not the knowledge that gets you plugged in. I'm asking if you know him with your mind and love him with your heart and long to be like him with your soul. Maybe you're here today and you don't know him. Can I explain to you that the teaching of the Bible says that when we do not know Jesus, we actually have no power to change. Not in the way that matters. Sin rules us and ruins us. Without the knowledge of Jesus, there is no way of dealing decisively with personal guilt and the shame that we experience by our wrongdoing. When we do not know Jesus, we find no answer to the deepest longings of our hearts for something more. And without the knowledge of Jesus, there is no hope in death. Now, your heart might very well be beating. I hope it is. (laughs) But the Bible says you're not alive until you come to Jesus. By turning away from sin and turning to him for forgiveness, you are made alive. And the journey of becoming like him begins. And I want to encourage you to do that today. Turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in him and get plugged into this divine power supply. Here's another aspect of God's amazing provision. He promises that one day we will be like him. That we will see him and be like him as he is. If you don't believe me, look at verse 4. Not only is the power to grow in godliness provided by God, but the promise of godliness as an end is guaranteed by God. Through these, that is through, again, his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What a statement that is. What does that mean? What does it mean to participate in the divine nature? Well, it's not that you become part of God. It's that we become like God in his character. It's sharing in the very character of who God is. That's what we've been promised. Now stop and think about this for a second. What exactly is a promise? And what's it intended to do? You've made promises, haven't you? It could be something as small as promising a parent you're tied to your room. It could be something as significant as the vows that you make on your wedding day. Well, when someone promises something to you, they give you their word for the future, don't they? They don't give you the reality when they make the promise there and then, but they assure you that one day you will have it. And the power of of a promise is that it makes you, in the present, look forward to receiving that promise. So you walk through life with a sense of anticipation, a sense of trust in the one who made the promise as well. And Peter is reminding us today that by God's amazing provision, we have the power to grow in godliness because he supplied it, and the promise of godliness because he's guaranteed it. You see, Peter Peter reminds us that God has made plenty of promises to us that hold out this prospect of godliness. And one day we truly will be a reflection of his son Jesus. Now, let me ask you, do you have that reality now? Are you a perfect reflection 
of the radiant sun of heaven. If I asked your spouse, what would they say? No, we know the answer to that. But we have this promise that one day we will have it. Isn't that precious? Isn't that incredible? And here's the thing, God always keeps his promises. That's not cliche, that's just fact. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are what in Christ Jesus? They're what? Yes. They are yes in Christ Jesus. So these promises guarantee what is to come. But we know fine and well. Okay, reality check. The way to glory is fraught with struggles with sin and temptation, isn't it? You know that. I know that. We all know that. But Peter reminds us in verse 4 that we are those... He's trying to keep our focus on what is important here. He reminds us that we are those who have escaped, in verse 4, the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. We've been called by his own glory and goodness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ to be the recipient of this power and this promise and we have escaped the corruption of the world. In other words, we've already had the first taste of freedom from sin. In a sense, Jesus has broken us free. We've escaped. That's what escape means. It means to break free. Now let me ask you this. What does a person do once they have broken free from something? Earlier this week I watched an amazing little video report of life inside an Austrian prisoner of war camp and the story of this daring escape from it by a a large number of French soldiers. And on the video, this French lieutenant told how they had smuggled a camera into the camp by hiding it in a sausage in order to actually keep a video diary of this escape. It it gave you a video, uh, it gave you insight into the tunnel. You got to see how they were digging. You saw a couple of guys who had fainted because there was barely any air down there. And what, a, what an incredible testimony this video was to their devotedness, moving towards this end goal and to their escape from the enemy who had enslaved them. 132 escaped. They'd broken free. Now tell me, what do you think they did when they got outside that perimeter fence? I'll tell you what they did. They got as far away from the enemy camp as they possibly could. And they put every ounce of their energy into making their way towards home. Peter reminds us today then that there is no difference for the Christian. That through Christ we have escaped the corruption of this world. And having escaped, we're supposed to flee from our enemy sin. And put every ounce of our effort and energy into making our way towards home. Now let me ask you, is this? what you're striving towards. If I was to download an app that would help me classify the priorities and list the priorities in your life, what would it show? I'm bad at prioritizing in my life. I know there are things that I should do that I don't do some days or things that I do before the things that I know need to be first. It's frustrating, isn't it? But we're not supposed to wallow in guilt or shame. 
The reason why Peter in verse 12 is saying, I'm always going to remind you of these things. It's important. You know these things, but I'm going to remind you of them again and again. It's because we're refreshed by the grace of the gospel. God's amazing provision of power and promise is fundamentally an outworking of his grace. Did you deserve that power and promise? I didn't. But I know that through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I'm a recipient of it. I didn't make the mark. It's through his glory and goodness. Praise God for that, right? Not only do we have God's amazing provision, though it does require, in terms of our growth, our active participation. This is the second thing in verses 5 to 9. The pursuit of godliness requires dedicated effort. In verse 5, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith and then provides a list. And in verse 10, he says, be all the more eager to make your calling an election sure. Now, make every effort and be all the more eager are one word in Greek. They have slightly different endings, but they are effectively saying the same thing. It is the word translated advance. Up, move forward. Onward you go. Forward is a great translation for it. And it takes our effort. We are to move forward towards home, having escaped the corruption of the world, and we are to put effort into it. The Christian life is no airport walkway. I hate those things. Well, I like them sometimes when I'm late. But only because they can make you do funny things as you slide along. It's just quite humorous. Anyway, that was not in my notes. Uh, airport, the Christian life is no airport walkway. It's not the case that we come to faith through a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and then all of a sudden we just float effortlessly towards our departure gate. That's not what it looks like. I'm looking out and I'm seeing all the people who use airport walkways right now, you understand. That's not what it's like. Well, you may well say, oh, but heaven is assured. You've just, you've just told me about the promise. Friend, I want to say with all seriousness that the evidence of the validity of your ticket, the evidence of your calling and election is really found in the progress that you make in your faith. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I, there are definitely people who make it by the skin of their teeth. But people do not drift towards holiness, as Don Carson says. People do not gravitate towards godliness. Actually, they drift the other way. So don't think that we can be lazy bones and be lax in our faith and somehow sing blessed assurance. Jesus. We can't. We can't. But with the power of God at our supply and with the promise of God guaranteeing our godliness, with our active participation in our faith, we are, we are to make additions we are to grow. We are to move forwards. We are to make progress. Adding to our faith. Faith is where it begins, of course. It's a means by which we are justified, made right with God. We've not arrived then. We are to add to our faith. Goodness. Is goodness a quality that marks our lives? We do good to others and seek their happiness more than ours. Then we add to that knowledge. 
We make the effort to read our Bibles and to talk with other believers. What are you learning? What's that all about? Have you ever understood this? Let me tell you about this. And we encourage one another and help one another grow. We need that knowledge. And then we add to it self-control. We put in the effort to be strong in the face of temptation, trusting in God's power to give us the strength to stand up under it. We add to that perseverance, pressing on through tough times in the present, in the light of the promise of better times ahead in the future. And we add to that godliness. The effort that we put in is meant to make us a truer reflection of Jesus, and even in the mundane moments of everyday life. And we add brotherly kindness. Oh, we do more to make our membership of God's family in a local church more meaningful. And we add to that love. A supreme characteristic that marks his existence becomes the definitive characteristic that marks ours. This, this is the way to a fruitful life. This is the way to an effective witness, a productive, unwasted life. The pursuit of godliness requires our effort. And Peter gives a warning. A lack of growth in godliness may point to spiritual blindness or even spiritual amnesia. Verse 8 says, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not see them, if anyone does not have them, verse 9, he is nearsighted and blind. In other words, you're not seeing properly. Either you're not really beholding the, the glory and the goodness of God as you once did, or your eyes are looking at something else altogether. The call of the gospel is fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and never remove them from him. The other problem highlighted is amnesia, really. He has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Loads of commentators actually say this is a reference to baptism. It's taking you right back to conversion when you were believed and were baptized. It's as if Peter's saying, you've forgotten the grace of God. You've, lo- you've lost the zeal that you had at your baptism. Somehow you've let it fritter away as you stood up and said, I believe this is what my life was like then. Here, here is what Jesus has done This is what my life is like now and I'm going to live for him. But maybe it's frittered away, that zeal. In any case, something isn't right. The encouragement again, brothers and sisters, is not to be laden down by guilt. God's word is not a hound trying to paralyze you in the corner. When I was young, we used to play Grand National. Uh, in the front gardens of our, uh, of our street. <laughs> it, it basically means you, you, you jump hedges, um, really without people's permission as well, which is not something I'm encouraging whatsoever. Anyway, we used to play Grand National up the hedges uh, of all the streets, but there was one garden we would not go into. That was, that was number 11, because Sheba lived there. Sheba was this almighty Alsatian. It was colossal. Honestly, it had bigger muscles than giant haystacks. Not many people know who giant haystacks is. Anyway, um, this was a powerful, this was a scary dog. Thankfully, it was always tied up, except 
on this one occasion when we were playing Grand National and somehow the dog got quite excited and managed to break loose and I tell you we have never jumped higher we have never run faster than we did on that day but one poor little guy just got caught up with this dog right in his face it was tall this dog was right in his face it chased him it paralyzed him God's word is not like that God's spirit is not like that yes you get conviction for the wrong things that you have done but it does not hound you into paralysis remember God's grace if you feel like you are blind and you're not seeing right in the faith if you feel like you're you're forgetful of Christ and his grace and the what the cross has won for you do not be paralyzed by fear by guilt or by shame but go to the cross again and take hold of that promise that we read from at the start my little children I write this to you so that you will not sin don't sin it's not good but if anyone does sin we have an advocate Jesus Christ the righteous one who made atonement for our sins that's the only basis we have of progressing in our faith the only basis of a grounding a foundation for our faith it's him not me not us so please don't go away from here with Sheba hounding you come and enjoy the safety of the cross by putting your faith and trust in him maybe then you can move forward not in hopelessness and doubt but with anticipation and expectation and with this I close in verses 10 to 11 we see that we are to move forward in expectation the person pursuing godliness can expect two things first of all expect to finish the race Peter says if you do these things this will be true for you you will never fall you'll never fall now Again, that's not saying you will never sin, but it's saying that you will never apostatize, never fall away completely. Remember who's writing this letter? It's Peter. Peter who says, I fell. I denied Jesus three times, but he restored me. I fell. Even at that moment when, I, when Jesus said, I'm going to be delivered over to death to the chief priests and elders. And Peter said, never, I will never let this happen to you. Even, at, even denying Jesus and being offensive in his face like that, he is the one who said to me, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, Peter. But I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen the brothers. Peter, who fell, who denied the Lord Jesus three times, was restored. It's as if he's saying, I fell, but I'm going to finish well. And so can you on account of the power and the promise. And you're moving forward. Satan would love to have every Christian think that there's no way back to a vibrant relationship with God if they failed him. But it's just not true. Peter's not talking here, of course, about sinlessness, but stead, steadiness all the way to the end. And what happens at the end for those who know God's amazing provision and who have actively participated in this growth in godliness, well, the person pursuing godliness can expect a rich welcome. What's the best welcome you've ever had? Was that an airport or something like that? You know, an arrivals gate? 
I get a great welcome every day I go home from, I nearly said school, every time I go home from work. And my kids just, just grab, they, I'm glad I've just got two kids because I've only got two legs. They just grab me, each one round each leg. And it's just a, I love it. I love it. It's the best welcome you've received. It's nothing, it's not going to be anything like this welcome. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is mind-blowing. We'll be like him and we'll see him as he is. We'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share my joy. And it will be like, to, to you and you alone be the glory. And you are worthy to be praised. Because we will receive on that day much more than we deserve. And our song will be, praise his glorious grace. So you see, what is it that helps us live this Christian life? What do we need to progress? What do we need to move forward and grow in godliness? Do we need berated? Or do we need reminders of these truths and be motivated by them? One final story. Uh, hill walking with two small children is not easy. Last September, Catherine and I took the kids to Keswick and we resolved we are going to conquer some of these hills. And the most challenging walk that we could uh, manage was a, a walk up Force Crag. It's about a four mile walk, eight mile there and back, with stunning views at the summit. And to cap it off, you know, a 60 or a 70 foot waterfall. It's not huge. It's not cascading down, but it's beautiful. Now, our two-year-old son was in the all-terrain buggy, so getting him up was easy. But getting our four-year-old daughter to the top was a little bit more of a challenge. And I discovered that day that there are two ways that you can get a child to the top of a mountain. One, you can force the kid to walk like a taskmaster. But you know what will Get up that hill! It's lovely up there. I've spent money to get us down to Keswick. Get up that hill! Oh, but dad! Just like that. Move it. If we don't get back, we're going to miss our dinner. You know, you see guilt-ridden things like that. You've all done it. What happens? Do you think, do you think the child will enjoy it? Of course not. The child will not enjoy it because you berate them for their slowness. You chide them for their lack of ambition. I'm surprised they don't just melt down and say, take me now. It's over. One, then you can force the kid to walk. Two, you can motivate them to want to walk by talking about how amazing the different viewpoints are on the walk and how phenomenal the summit is. And you can motivate them to walk by saying, look, I found another hairy caterpillar. Look at this, this one. There were lots on this walk, by the way. I didn't just make that up. And you can promise them, the view up here, wait till you see this waterfall. It's beautiful. And another way is, is that you can say to them, look, even in the times when you're getting really, really tired, I can stick you on my shoulders for a wee while. I can carry you when it's hard. Let me ask you, do you think the child will hate it or do you think the child will love it? It's far more enjoyable. 
It's not without its strenuous effort, but it's far more enjoyable. Now, which of these best represents the Christian life as it's meant to be? We often fall back on the taskmaster, don't we? But 2 Peter 1 says, that's not right. The taskmaster says, get up the hill. But our father says, the view from the top is glorious. You're going to want to see this. So when it comes to making progress in our faith, we're not driven forward by a taskmaster. We're called forward by a father who supplies everything we need for life and godliness. Who promises us that one day we will have it. And in verse 12, Peter reminds us again, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. I think it's right to refresh your memory. Don't forget, brothers and sisters. And please help me not to forget either. Let's pray.